Good evening. Good to be back with you <clears throat> uh, tonight. We uh, appreciate the opportunity uh, that God has afforded us and, and thankful for you tuning in tonight. We're going to take a kind of a, uh, um, a sidebar for tonight. Uh, we're fixing to go through John chapter 6 and <clears throat> um, as we did when we went through the book of Romans, there's uh, uh, some ideas that I, that I wanted to talk about tonight and this granted and rightfully so may not be uh for everyone and they may not enjoy it and so but it's nevertheless it's some important ideas and philosophical concepts that we need to discuss and, and talk about and i just kind of want to lay this groundwork uh, before we get into john 6 because <clears throat> this is a kind of a a prime text for some of the things we're going to be discussing um moving forward and like i said we we got on these uh, pretty heavily in the book of Romans as well. Uh, but I just don't want to take some time, and, and there's a lot of people that, that I know that they they take the view that this is uh, this is not necessary, not need to know, or um, maybe don't want to know or don't want to study, and, and um, I respect that perspective. Um, but I also, too, want to make sure that uh, as the shepherd that we make sure that um, that the uh, information is at least available, um, whether or not you want to look at it or listen to it. Uh, we just want to <clears throat> make it available and accessible. Uh, and maybe it's not something you want to study now, but maybe it would be something you want to study in the future. But nevertheless, just wanted to say all that. I understand that uh, um, the, uh, the 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 stage and the state of the church that we're in right now, having to do things a lot different, but we appreciate and we say this weekly. Uh, thankful for the opportunity and the technology that's provided to us so we can we can uh, pull this off. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll dive uh, into where I want to go tonight. Our Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for this privilege, honor, and opportunity of prayer. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your wonderful kindness, God, and your gracious mercy which you bestow upon us, God. We're so unworthy and undeserving. God, of any good thing, God, that you would grant or give unto us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, Lord, that you loved us, God, while we were yet sinners. We thank you, Lord, for uh, saving us. We thank you, Lord, for keeping us. We thank you for, uh, God, your your goodness and your gracious mercy. We pray, uh, pray that you bless those, Father, uh, God, that are sick and afflicted, nursing homes and hospitals, Lord, homebound, bedridden. Father, Lord, you know the states and the current conditions of every soul. And we pray, God, uh, Lord, your rich, richest blessings and glory upon them, which we know are endless and boundless. God, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us tonight. God, as we rightly divide thy word, we pray that we could be good stewards over thy word. Uh, Father, we speak words of truth, God, not words of opinion, but Lord, we uh, pray that we would speak, uh, God, with truth and clarity for the edification of the church. Watch over us now, we pray. Bless, uh, as we've already asked, God touch the sick. We pray most of all, Father, for those that are lost and undone, nearest hell, never receive Jesus, precious to their never dying soul. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, as I earlier stated, we're going to be getting into John chapter number six. That's what we're coming up on. And, and I wanted to take just a sidebar here for just a few minutes and go through some some philosophical concepts and that, that apply to theology and there's a lot of people today they say well we don't want to study uh, philosophy we want to study theology which is the study of God now I understand that but I want to uh, lay this road map out here for you tonight that 
we our our philosophy that we have of of the worldview of the text of the scripture of God um, that is the lenses in which we read the Word of God, and so we want to uh, reconcile these things and. And you may not land where I land, and that's perfectly fine and acceptable if you want to land in a different position. Um, <clears throat> I understand that, but I'm going to give you, uh, b- because we have what we call presuppositions. What, what are presuppositions? These are things that we presuppose into the text that we believe are true, are truths. So these are suppositions or things that we think and we and these things that we suppose that are true of the text, that's how we read the text when we're reading the Scripture. Uh, so, uh, and this, this uh, I hope, will uh, begin to work itself out as we go through this. Uh, one verse in particular in John chapter 6, the reason that we're taking kind of a time out and sidebar and discussing this is an all-familiar quoted uh, a verse, is John six forty four. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. So, uh, there's there's a, a lot of presuppositions that go into the reading of this text and what this text means and the outputs of, uh, the outputs of it and the logical ends of these things. And this is what we want to carry out tonight. And so I want to talk about uh, a, a lot of various different terms because we hear these words and these terms tossed about and cast about uh, so often. And uh, one one word that we hear often is the word sovereignty. What does sovereignty mean? God is our sovereign king. And the term sovereignty uh, entails that he is a ruler over all things, that he is king of kings, lord of lords, and god of gods, that he is supreme and maximally great. He, there is none, he is the uncreated creator. Uh, he, he is uh, all things that, uh, that ever... Uh, he, he, exi- he exists because he is God. It is innate to his nature. And there's a lot of people, they ask the questions, well, where, where did God come from? Well, God is the uncreated crea- creator. Uh, he didn't come from anywhere or come from uh, something. Uh, this world was created from nothing. Uh, there, there are philo- uh, philosophical uh, questions and perspectives, and there are, there are things and there are questions and thoughts and ideas that the church has asked for years and years and years. And it's summed up. Uh, when Moses asked God, or he asked God, to, uh, when he said, when Pharaoh asked, who shall I say sent me? He said, say, I am. Uh, and we see in that terminology, the I am, that is uh, relating the sovereignty of God. And I want to read a quote to you. And listen, I've got a ton of notes tonight. Uh, and, and I'm going to read these to you. And, and I, I had to write these things down because these are the points that I wanted to go through and make and uh, this may be long and it may not be, but uh, but uh, A.W. Tozer wrote this as one of my favorite quotes on God's sovereignty. And it says, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. Uh, when he chooses to do evil, uh, he does thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice Uh, the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to say his hand or or say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign cannot bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. It's a quote by A.W. Tozer, but as we get 
uh, and, and we study about the sovereignty of God. What does this uh, uh, essentially allude to? When we, and you've heard me use these terms, and we've never really taken the time uh, to talk about them. We've talked about them while we've been reading through the text, and we're going to read a lot of text. We're going to read a lot of scripture tonight, so, uh, and I'm just going to put a lot of information out there, uh, and, and, and I don't expect everybody just to, to, to soak this up and take it and run with it. That's not my expectation. I just want to give you the information so hopefully you can go study it um, so you can better understand the Word of God. Uh, but when, when we get to this right here, we talk about sovereignty. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty uh, is the relationship or uh, the understanding that God uh, is the sovereign king. When I say that he is sovereign, that means that he is ruler, director over every uh, single thing that we have. Uh, now there, there's a lot of there's a lot of presuppositions that come into the term sovereignty, and we'll discuss those here in just a few uh, minutes. But when we talk about uh, theological philosophy, this is the method by which, in the lenses by which we uh, we read the uh, we read the scriptures and we understand this. It's it's our theology. It's our formation of who God is. Is God love to us? Uh, and it, 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 are these the prime, primary principles? And we study through the omnis. And you hear this quoted from the pulpit a lot. We, we talk about God's omnipotence, God's omniscience, uh, God's omnipresence, God's omnibenevolence. And we want to discuss tonight what those are. His omnipotence is that he is all-powerful. Uh, Matthew twenty eighteen. Behold, I have all power in heaven and in earth, and and this speaks to the potentiality of God. What potential does God have? What well, we serve the sovereign King, so His omnipotence or the potential of what He has the power to do is infinite. There's nothing that He cannot do. Uh, now, listen. There, there, when we see these things, we begin to formulate our theology of God, and so we see that He is all powerful. And then we go to the next stage right here, and we're going to talk about omniscience. We're going to talk about omniscience in, in great detail and how these two are tied, how omnipotence and omniscience are intimately tied. But omniscience, in its fundamental elementary definition, is that God is all-knowing, uh, that he knows all things that are possibly knowable. That means omniscience. That, that, that is the output of omniscience. Okay, then we have omnipresence. What does omnipresence mean? Omnipresence means that God is present in every circumstance, in every possible situation, everywhere at all times. This is the omnipresence of God. Uh, and we see that God is uh, omnipresent because he is omnipotent, because he is all power. His potential is limitless and endless. And because of his omnipotence uh, and because of his omniscience, he knows all things. He has the ability to be omnipresent, which means he is present in every Christian saved, Bible-believing, uh, uh, in the presence of every uh, Bible-believing, saved, washed in the blood of Jesus, born-again Christian. Uh, he is present, fully active uh, in every single aspect and circumstance of every individual's life. We, not, we, are, uh, we, we have the indwelling presence of the, of the Godhead, the, the, the Holy Spirit, which is the third person. And uh, that lives in us. And this is what we've been talking about as we've been working our way through the book uh, of John. We've been discussing and emphasizing, and I'm going to talk about this in a little bit greater detail tonight as well, about the corporate view of the church and God's family uh, and the institution of things, how that thought is carried forth 
and how it was birthed in the book of Genesis and how it comes to fruition in the book of Revelation, this, this corporate view and God's family. Uh, and we see the importance of all these things. And then we talk about God's omnibenevolence. What is God's omnibenevolence? That means that God is, uh, that he loves and he cares and he wants the best for all individuals at all times. This is his omnibenevolence. This is uh, the declaration that we often preach from, uh, from the pulpit when we, when we talk about Calvary. What is Calvary? What is the definition of Calvary? God is love. Well, in God's uh, greatest manifestation of love, we have the incarnate, the second person of the Godhead, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messianic King and the High King of Heaven came down, embraced and embodied uh, this robe of human flesh. And when he embodied and embraced this robe of human flesh, he endured all sufferings, pains, and afflictions. He endured these things. That's what the Bible tells us in the seventh chapter uh, of the book of Hebrews. Uh, uh, listen, he was uh, as uh, like passions as we are. Uh, that he was tempted, that he was tried. We see these things in Matthew chapter 4, the, the 40 days in the wilderness when Jesus was, tempta uh, was tempted uh, and, and he was drawn away of the devil. But we see all these things uh, come to uh, the forefront and fruition. Uh, and, and we see the Bible tells us, uh, I love this verse right here in Hebrews 7.26, uh, for such an high priest became us. And this, of course, this high priest is talking about the incarnate Son of God, the, uh, Jesus Christ. For such a high priest became us, who is, he's holy, he's harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate uh, from sinners. And so when we see uh, this, this, this is our theology. This is the formulation of, of, of who God is. Uh, and there's a lot of people today, they say, well, we don't want to study this. We don't want to know this. But friends, listen, to understand the truth uh, and the complexity, the, uh, I'll say this, the complexity and the depth and the breadth of the Word of God, uh, we must formulate a correct and proper theology. Uh, and that is who God is. And we construct that theology through a process of philosophy. And what is that? What does philosophy have to do with theology? So philosophy is the logical construct, how things play out. What are their logical ends? If we take libertarian freedom or the, the, the free will of a creature uh, and we run that to its, uh, uh, we exhaust that to its limits and to its end, what is the, what is the sum total and final output? Of that, or, or, and we're going to talk about de de determinism and predestination. We're going to talk about all these things tonight. And like I say, I know this is a lot of discussion. I'm going to try and keep this about an hour. I'm not going to go uh, crazy in depth on these things. I just want to get these terms in front of you, define them, uh, so we have these in our tool bag, so we understand what we're talking about. So we've talked about what a presupposition is. We talked about what sovereignty is. We're going to discuss in great detail what knowledge is. And we talk about uh, determinism. What is determinism? Okay, so determinism, and, and there's different flavors and versions, uh, but uh, determinism in its utter uh, uh, context, and a lot of people, we use the term predetermined in the text and the scripture because it's in the Bible. And it is a theology of the Bible that we should hold. But there's a lot of people who say, say, well, we don't believe uh, um, we don't believe in this. We don't. We don't believe in predetermination. Well, listen, we we can we can faithfully uh, and truthfully hold to a predeter or determinism uh, 
uh, in the positive aspect. There are things that are determined. Listen, there are things that are beyond our control. That's, that's the base definition of determinism, things that are done uh, prior to us having any causality to them. So when we see things that are determined in our lives, uh, listen, I could not determine who my parents are, where I was born, where I was raised. These are things that are outside of my control. These are uh, circumstances and parameters that, that I was born into. These are determined in my life. I can't change them. I can't alter them. The only thing that I have is the choices that I possess through my uh, through my free will that God has endowed me with is we are the image of God. We are made in his likeness and in his image. We are possessors. We are bearers of God's image. And so we see that this determinism language is used. And I want to read this, and you can just cut over with us if you want to. Uh, I'm going to read a few, pass, a few uh, verses out of uh, uh, Ephesians chapter number 1. I'm going to start at verse number 3. Just going to read a few passages because we have a lot of these terms that come up, and I want to talk about it. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, now we see this predetermination aspect brought to our forefront in verse number 4. According as he hath chosen us, okay, uh, so this is specifically speaking about God. It says, God hath chosen us in him. And I want you to pay attention to these two words right here, in him. Who is he talking about when he declares in him? This is a, a direct correlation. And this is to the Messianic Christ. This is talking about uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Okay, hold that thought. I'm going to read some more verses in the book uh, of uh, of of Ephesians right here, but I want to take you over here, and you've heard me quote this verse a lot, all right? So in 1 Peter uh, chapter number 1, verse number 18, it says, For as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now listen to this in verse 20. Who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The foreordination of God. What is the foreordination of God? These are things that are, are, are ordained beforehand. Foreordained. These things, so we need to understand this, that Christ was foreordained or uh, before ordained, before the foundation of the world. So Christ is the eternal begotten Son of God. Uh, and, is he, and he is the second head, second part of the Godhead. Uh, of one essence and, and three beings, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And so we see uh, where Christ has come, and he is the foreordained Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. There's not a time in which he did not exist. And so we need to understand this. Why is this important? Because of the foreordination of Christ, that means that there was a Redeemer and a Savior before the creation of this world. So there's so many people today that they say that they have no hope, they have no way, there is no way out, that God does not love them. My friends, I'm here to tell you and declare unto you through the truth of the Word of God, you are eternally loved in the Son, the Messianic Savior from the tribe of Judah in Jesus Christ. He loves you. He, his will and his 
uh, and his will and his love is that you be saved and born into the family of God. That is God's purpose and intention for your life. And I want to talk to people about this. Uh, so listen, uh, so the Bible tells us right here, as I said, uh, we were redeemed not from the things of this world, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish without spot, who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world. And he was manifesting these last times for you. So we can go back over to the book of Galatians in the fourth chapter. Uh, we'll find where the Bible tells us that uh, uh, in due season and in due time that uh, a man came uh, and it was born uh, of a woman uh, in the fullness of time uh, to redeem them that were under the law. And this is, uh, this is talking about Christ. So we get to this. We get, we get this. Uh, we get all these thoughts. All right. So I'm going to get back over here to the book of Ephesians. According as he hath chosen us in him. So we see this. I want, I, want, I want to bring this to the forefront. We're talking about this. And I understand that a lot of this is, is hard to follow. I, 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 listen, um, I, am, I am far from being able to truly uh, uh, understand this in its entirety. And it's taken me years and years and years and hours and hours and hours of reading and studying uh, to get to this point. And, but I, I want to... I want to put these things out here for the church so that you can consume them, uh, listen, and you can process them. Because I, I listen, we we need uh, we need to be filled and fed as the people of God. God's sheep need to be well fed and well nourished, and we need to understand the truths of God's word and not be swayed away, as the book of James says in the first chapter of James, be swayed away and driven to and fro uh, with every wind of doctrine. So listen. The Bible says, of course, he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This term us right here. And listen, I've tried my best to bring this to the forefront of everything that we've discussed in the first five chapters of John thus far is the corporate aspect that there is there is a body of believers. Uh, There is a family of God. And a lot of times today, what we've done with the word of God is we have individualized it. We've taken everything and we say, well, that just applies to me. Uh, listen, and we need to understand this. Everything must first apply to Christ. Uh, he is the head and we are the body. Uh, because he is, we are. Not because we are, he is. But see, uh, that's where you, that, that, that's the problem that you run into when you individualize everything in the word of God is now because we are, he has to be. Because what is true or false of us as the person, the individual, also has to be true or false uh, of Christ or the Trinity. Uh, and that is in direct opposition to what the text teaches. The Bible says in Second Timothy, of the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Uh, so we know that the foundation of God stands assured that God is not shaken, that God is not faltered, God is not frail, uh, God is not fretting. My friends, listen, he understands and he has and he grasps all these things. And we need to understand that we are in him. He is the head and we are the body. What is true of the head is therefore true of the body. We uh, Listen. The body is not justified, and in, 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 in the justification of the body, the head is not justified. The head is justified, therefore the body is. Uh, the, 
friends, listen, we're, uh, we're not raised because of ourselves. We're not raised in resurrection and newness of life because uh, it is innate within us. No, we are raised in the resurrection and newness of life because the head is. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ as a corporate body. And this is the language of the Word of God. It's not talking about you all the time, but so many people, they take... Uh, now, listen. Now, or I, I want to say this. This is an argument that comes up all the time. Well, uh, they say, well, well, preacher, are, are corporations not made up of individuals? Yes, absolutely. Uh, they absolutely are made up of individuals. And we are individuals within this corporate body. But friends, listen, when we speak in covenant language, which the scripture is written in, when we understand this covenant language, God is talking to a covenant people, a covenant people that are in Jesus Christ. So the Bible says, uh, uh, well, let me read this. My, my, my scripture breaks here. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Okay, so now we see this word, uh, this term predestinated. What does that mean? That means to be destined beforehand. So who has he destined beforehand? There's a lot of people, they, they individualize this text. And when they individualize this text, what that eventually leads to is something that we'll talk about in a little bit greater detail. And we talked about this extensively. We went through especially the book of Romans in the 8th and ninth chapter. If you want to go back and listen to that, we talked about uh, there's, there's something that's termed as exhaustive divine determinism. What is the output of that? Where does that lead to? That means that uh, th this is the uh, very strong man elementary definition of this that is that God has meticulously determined every thought, action, and molecule of this present world. There's nothing happens that, listen, nothing can happen unless he ordained or decreed it to happen. This is a violation of free will, and we'll talk about these things. Uh, and this is where we get into the sovereignty aspect of things. There's a lot of people argue, they say, well, God cannot be sovereign unless he has uh, absolute and total exhaustive control over every single attribute here in this present world. But what the scripture argues against is that uh, that God can be sovereign over people and have them possess the knowledge of all these creatures and still not impede upon their free will. Uh, listen, and give them uh, utterance and he can still be sovereign king, bring about every principle, every action that is a necessity within God's realm and within God's plan. And listen, I know I am absolutely, totally nerding out on you tonight. I understand that. Uh, listen, but I want you to listen to this. This is important. This is this is this is a fight that has ingrained itself in the church. And we uh, listen. There's a lot. I'm not going to name drop and name call tonight. But listen, there's so many popular preachers that have adopted this uh, theology, and this is their philosophical understanding of how they interpret the text. And because this is how they. Uh, this is how they examine and enter the text. This is their output. This is what they teach. And listen, it is being force-fed to our generation of the church. And we need to call it for what it is. We need to recognize it. We need to understand it. And we say that that's not our God. That our God is a God of love. That our God sends no one to hell. He determines or, or, or preordains no one to go to hell. But God's purpose 
is that he is omnibenevolent, that he wants and desires and, and, uh, the best for every creature. Having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Okay, so having destined beforehand. So he has, uh, he has destinated or he has ordained an aspect or a, a specific group of people uh, to be... Uh, listen, uh, until the adoption of Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So he has predestined you set aside a certain select individual group. Now, who is that group? That group is the whosoever wills that is defined in John three sixteen. That group is all those that believe and cast allegiance unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's exactly and, ex and specifically who that is. Uh, so this is, what do we call this body? We call this body the church. This is the body of believers that have professed that Jesus is Savior. God, the Bible tells us that he has ordained this group of people. He has ordained this group of people uh, to be uh, made and adopted uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. He has made us accepted in the blood. So we see this us language. When we see this, we see corporate language. What does this corporate language allude to? This alludes to the church. Don't individualize this. Don't take this specifically. Now listen, we have these benefits because we are part of this corporate body, which is the church. But Christ died. Uh, listen, Christ died for all. The, the church is his bride. This is the body of believers that have professed allegiance to him. Uh, and listen, these are all the benefits that he has given to us if we align with him. And we cast by faith through grace, okay? We're saved by faith through grace in Christ, in him, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Uh, see, this, the, the, uh, when it talks about the benefits, it uses us language. It's plural language. But friends, listen, the primary point of this text in Ephesians 1 is directly, uh, uh, is directly implicating Christ as the head. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, had made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he had purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together all in all one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, both which are in earth and in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ and whom you have trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So we see uh, here in, in, in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, uh, we see where Christ has preordained a body. This body is the church. He's preordained this body to be in Christ. We are justified. We are free. We are saved. We are healed. We are set free in him. And friends, listen, when we, when we by faith through grace, when we cast allegiance to the king, uh, we are therefore rolled into this corporate body and we stand under his atoning umbrella. Okay, and when I say atoning umbrella, yeah, this this is the language where we see where we stand between the cherubim's wings in the place of mercy, at the at the propitiating place, which is Christ. We stand in Him. We are in 
Jesus Christ. I want the church to profoundly hear this tonight. We are in him. We are not justified in and of ourselves. We are justified, saved, sanctified, one day glorified in Christ, Christ alone. So we have, we have sovereignty, we have determinism, we have foreknowledge. What is, not, what is foreknowledge? That is knowledge beforehand, okay? Uh, so listen, I want to get into this, and there's a, uh, there's a philosophical construct called uh, Molinism. You don't necessarily have to uh, understand that, but I want to do lay out the three points. So uh, we have these right here. So logically prior to God's decision to create the world, listen to this, logically prior to God's decision to create the world, God knew everything that would happen in any possible uh, circumstance or scenario he could create. Uh, so I, listen, I, and you've heard me talk about this, the modes of God's knowledge, the logical priority of God's knowledge. What do we have? We have natural knowledge, middle knowledge, and free knowledge. So I want to put it to you like this. Uh, God knew, God knew what he freely could create and he could do. And because he knew what he freely could create or could do, that is what is called God's natural knowledge. And because of God's natural knowledge, if he knows what a, 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 an agent or a person could do, he also therefore implied in that knows what they would do if in every circumstance he knew what Chris would do if I was not doing Bible study right now, uh, tonight at 15 till 5 on Wednesday, February the 17th. He knows what I would be doing otherwise. This is uh, what we, uh, this is what's called counterfactual knowledge. That means that he, uh, he has uh, a knowledge of facts that could happen in any scenario. God, what what does this define about God? This defines God's omniscience. What does that mean? As we said in the outstart of this, the definition of God's not omniscience is that he knows all things that are knowable. So we see a God, we build our construct of God on this premise. We, we serve a God because he is maximally great, because he is God of gods, King of kings, and Lord of lords, we know that he, uh, and because he's omniscient, he's therefore omnipotent. And because he's omnipotent, he's therefore omniscient. Because there's nothing beyond his realm of potentiality, what he can or cannot do. So he knows uh, what uh, uh, an individual could do if he would freely create them. And because he uh, knows what they could do if he freely created them, he knows what they would do if he freely created them. And therefore, it comes to logical conclusion that because he knows what they could do what they know, and he knows what they will do, he also therefore knows what they will do. Okay? Now, we talk about this, and we say this. Friends, listen, we see the could, the would, and the will. And we say, well, how do we get to this uh, right here, and, and, and how do we... Uh, you know, how do we square all this, preacher? We, we get to an understanding, listen, how does God know all these things and not therefore determine all these things or put everything that, or uh, as we earlier said, exhausted to find determinism? How, so listen, you've heard me do this before, uh, at church before. So uh, knowledge is not causal, okay? Uh, and those of you that's listening on the podcast, you can't see what I'm doing. I'm holding a pen in my hand. Uh, listen, and if all the laws of gravity work correctly, 
I know that if I drop this pen right here on my Bible, when I let go of it with my fingers, if, dra- if gravity takes over, uh, that this pen, by virtue of gravity, will fall, it will hit my Bible, it may bounce off, hit the table, it may bounce off, hit the floor. Uh, but I, one thing I do know is that when I drop this pen, it falls. Okay? Did I cause this? No. My knowledge did not cause this action. And so because we serve an omniscient God, therefore does not imply that everything that he knows that he has to cause. So what does this mean? This means that we, you and I, are creatures. And when we see this, where does this come into play? And and this is why we talked about this at great length. We went through uh, the book of Romans, especially uh, in the first chapter of Romans, when the Bible says, for the wrath of God, verse number 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because uh, they uh, which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen uh, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so they are without excuse why is this important there's so many people today they want to blame God for certain aspects and things and positions in their lives uh, listen, there, there's a philosophical position called the first mover, uh, and I want to put this to you. So there's a lot of people, they, uh, they, they make bad choices and bad decisions, but it's a choice that they made 20 years removed from their first action. Uh, we see this in drug addiction and alcoholism. We see this manifest in a lot of different ways. Uh, 20 years from, removed from their first action, we see where... Uh, that they they come to a state in a place of addiction that they literally cannot live without this stuff and friends listen there's a lot of people say well this is god's fault or his position or the place he's put in no this person 20 years removed if you back up and and you go back in time 20 years you'll see where he was the first mover he was the first action he was the first cause of this degradation of a lifelong uh, manifestation until it fully vests himself into a place where he cannot live without it. And friends today, listen, when we read on past in the the first chapter of the book of Romans, we talk about this uh, and and we we spent a whole whole series on this on Wednesday night when we talked about being turned over to a reprobate mind. That means that having lust and consuming those things upon your lust and you're constantly rejecting, perpetually rejecting the Spirit of God, the drawing, wooing, uh, repenting power of the Spirit of God. You reject those things. You reject the truth and unrighteousness. You desire only what you want. You don't desire the things of God, and therefore you are pushed away, pushed away, pushed away until your conscience is seared. You're turned over into a reprobate mind. What does that mean? That means that you live the rest of your life pleasing yourself in your lust and in your sin. And when you spend uh, your life in your lust, in your sins, constantly rejecting the Holy Spirit of God, the drawings, the wooings, the things that God has done, when you speak against the Spirit, you speak against Calvary, you speak against the Word of God, you speak against all these attributes that God has done and initiated toward humanity that they might be redeemed, the only alternative for you is hell, is a life where you are eternally cut off. What a sad and unfortunate circumstance that it is for people to find themselves in this place is because they have chosen themselves. That's why you are without excuse. You have chosen to reject God. So I I say all that to say this. 
Uh, it, we need to understand that there's a lot of people in determinism. They say, well, God can't know anything unless he determines it. So we see where uh, God has his natural knowledge. Then we, what, then we have what we call, we insert what we call the decree or the creative decree. And then God knows everything because he decreed everything. That's, that's determinism. That's what the output of determinism is. And that God can only know things that he determines. And let me tell you what the logical output of that is. That means that God determines who goes to heaven and God uh, and he determines also in turn who goes to hell okay is that the God that you serve that's not the God that I serve that is not the omnibenevolent God that I serve the omnibenevolent God that I served he knows the free choices of every individual so listen I want to back up and throw another term at you this is called a satiety what is a satiety a satiety is a state in which God's, uh, God exists eternally before creation, okay? There is nothing else but God, but the Trinity. This is the state of a satiety. And in the state of a satiety, God possesses natural knowledge and middle knowledge. He knows all things that are knowable. And his knowledge is not contingent upon, upon man, upon what I do, okay? Uh, I don't make God what he is. You don't make God what he is. God doesn't know what he knows because of what you've done. This is called the simple foreknowledge view. The simple foreknowledge view takes the perspective that God looks down through time, and when he looks through time, he sees the choices of every individual, and because he sees those choices of every individual, therefore he knows them, okay? So we have the natural knowledge, we have the creative decree, then God looks through time. When God looks through time, he sees the choices of man. And when he sees the choices of man, he knows them after he creates them. Let me tell you how harmful this is. Let me tell you what this does. This, this violates and corrupts God's omniscience. That means that he doesn't know all things that are knowable. He only, because now his knowledge is contingent on what I do. Okay, God's not who God is is not contingent on me. God is all God is God in a satiety. Okay, so God is God in a place where nothing else exists. Therefore, he has all these things. He is all these things. Okay, I know that's a lot to comprehend, but I want to talk about these things. And maybe I just want to talk about them to talk about them. Uh, but I want to get these things out there so people can understand. So, listen, that, that was the first point. The second point is this. As beings created in the image uh, image of God, humans like God possess libertarian freedom. What is libertarian freedom? Libertarian freedom, uh, uh, in a nutshell, is this. This is uh, the, the, the choice to choose from a range of options that are compatible with one's nature. Okay? And when I say one's nature, I'm talking about the Imago Dei. Uh, the image of God. Uh, so we have a range of options before us. There are things in my life, as I've already talked about, that are determined that I cannot change. Can't change my parents. Can't change where I was born. I can't change these things. But I have a range of options in front of me. Uh, listen, because I have a range of options in front of me, that means that I have libertarian freedom. And God knows my choices uh, in the state of a city. He doesn't know those things because I decide those things and he knows them. And listen, his knowledge is not contingent upon me. He knows them because he's God. Okay? Now, there's a lot of people say, well, well describe that to me. How does that work? What, how does that mechanism operate? I don't know. <laughs> okay? He's God. And that's where we need to leave it. He is God. He is our king. 
So the third point would be this, omnibenevolence. God is a maximally great being who loves and desires the best uh, for all people, okay? So listen, and we, and we see this manifest itself in First Peter, or Second Peter, I believe it is, uh, 3, 9. I'm going to read this to you. Second uh, Peter 3, 9. Very familiar scripture. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. He loves every single individual. That is, that is his will. And listen, I want to say, that, I want to say this. Uh, the term uh, freely never disappears. Uh, the term freely should never disappear from your philosophical perspective. Uh, God freely knows what someone could do. He freely knows what someone freely would do, and therefore he knows what they freely will do, okay? This does not mean that God causes. His knowledge is not causal. We demonstrated that here just a few minutes ago. God uh, is knowledgeable of all these things. God has perfect ordination, perfect direction in every single circumstance, he knows all things. Uh, there's a, uh, a, a wonderful scholar, Dr. Layton Flowers. Uh, he gives a, a wonderful example. Um, he talks about uh, you, you've got two chess players. Uh, so you've got a chess master who sits down, uh, and he defeats every opponent. And the only reason he defeats every opponent is because he has determined every move that the opponent will make. Okay, so you have one, you have this chess master. This chess master has determined every move that will ever be made on the board, and therefore he is the master because he's determined everything. And over here, you have uh, the chess master uh, who, listen, he doesn't determine, he doesn't determine the moves of the opposing party, but his knowledge is such because he is innately the maximally great, most wonderful being. Uh, and God that we have ever known, and because he knows these things, because he is innately knowledgeable of all things that are knowable, he can, he, he, listen, he can outmaneuver, he can, he can position, and he can defeat every opponent, not because he has to make that opponent do something in order for him to beat them, but because he is God. So who is more sovereign in that case? Friends, listen, we see the sovereignty of God. Now, friends, listen, I want to say this. Uh, we we have the prophecies of God. We have the coming of Christ. We have the birth of Christ. There's, listen. There are billions, literally billions of decisions that had to come to fruition in God's perfect place, in God's perfect time, uh, in God's understanding. Billions. Oh, listen. Uh, uh, trillions of decisions had to be made in order to bring the fruition of the birth of our Messiah, for it to be prophesied years before. Friends, listen, all these things had to be understood. God orchestrated this beautiful picture in which he is re reconciling his family together, a, a, a place and a, a corporate body of redeemed people is what he's drawing together. So friends, listen, we get into this and and the primary text of this, we read Ephesians chapter number one. Uh, of course, I, I would encourage you to go back to listen just for the sake of time tonight. Go back and listen to Romans 9. Uh, and we're going to get into John 6. But we've talked about the corporate and the individual aspect. And we talked about what that does uh, to the scripture. Uh, when we put ourselves first and we don't put the body, uh, 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 listen, underneath the head. 
We talk about uh, terms like election. We talk about Old Testament election. What is Old Testament election? Old Testament election uh, is the simple fact that God chose and selected a people in which he would therefore birth the Messiah. That's why I call her the elect lady, and she and her name was Israel. Uh, so, friends, listen, we have that election of a race. Uh, listen, and that ethnic uh, a portion of Israel was brought to the place in which she bore Christ. And when she bore Christ, listen, that was at the redeeming of all nations. Okay? Uh, listen, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to our Romans 9 because specifically uh, when we we'll go back and read the, the first person, I'm not going to get into it tonight because we've already been almost an hour. I'm going to try and keep this uh, uh, under an hour. God, God being our helper. <laughs> okay? But I do want to say this. Now, I just want to tie this thing up and close in this. So we have libertarian freedom. There's uh, the, the what God's knowledge is, what God is. Okay? How we read the text. Friends, listen to me. Christ and the love of God and His uh, and his omnis, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnibenevolence. That is their theology. And those are the lenses which we almost, which we uh, should always uh, focus and read the, the, the text through. Because we can take what we think uh, and we can read it into the text. And that's what's called eisegete in the text. That's reading into the text what we think. But we want to exegete the text. What does that mean? We want to take the, the scripture. We want to read it and get out of it what it says. Not what we think it says. We don't want to twist the scripture into saying something that we think it says because of our, our, our front-loaded presuppositions that we force into it. We want to see, Lord, just give us the text let it speak to us. Let us let it change us, Lord. I don't want the. I, listen, I don't want to believe these things. Listen, I I love and I appreciate our forefathers and and, and our ancestors who have hammered out and uh, and and given this this privilege that we have. But the onus is on us. It's on you personally and individually to be a student of the Word of God, to understand the Word, not read into it what you've been taught. But read the Word of God and let it teach you to be a student of the Word of God. And when you become a student of the Word of God, we should therefore be stewards of the Word of God. And being steward, we should serve other people faithfully uh, as we possibly can. And we can tell them the truth about God's Word, that God loves them, that there is a way, that there is a Christ, that there is a mediator, that there is a place of hope, a place of mercy. Uh, listen, where we can run, where we can find solace for our souls, that there is an eternal rest uh, for the people of God, that there's a new heaven and a new earth wherein he will be our God and we shall be his people. We will reign together and God will reinstitute what was once lost. And friends, listen, this is the great story of the word of God. God is not a villain. God is not the author of evil. God, my friends today, listen, God listen. God is a God of love and he desires for us to fall under his kingship and thankful that we have the high king of heaven. When we talk about preaching the gospel, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, preaching the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, that we have the messianic root and the offspring of David that came to fulfill that Davidic seed that Abraham saw. 
He came. He lived 33 and a half years. He did wonderful works and miracles. He testified of truths. He raised from the dead. He touched blind eyes. He made the lame to see or made the lame to walk. Friends, listen, he went to the cross of Calvary. He gave himself, amen, as a as a lamb is led to the slaughter, so Christ gave himself. He said, no man takes my life. He said, but I lay it down. We have this gospel truth. He surrendered his life. He became not only our representative, but he became our substitute. He stood in our place. And in becoming our substitute, he yielded up the Holy Ghost and he died for all of humanity. And in dying for all of humanity, friends, listen to me. He was uh, three days and three nights in the heart of the grave, but he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He is the high king of heaven. He is the king of kings and he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He, he was seen of the 12 and above 500 hundred, the Bible tells us, but the story does not end there. He ascended back to the right hand of God the Father to reign and to rule in supremacy over his elect lady, the church, the new Israel that, that thrives and survives today that is the body of the head. That is the gospel truth. And friends, listen, people need to be presented with this truth. They need to make an, a, a decision on this truth. Uh, listen, just as G, uh, Jesus posed the question to Peter, Peter, who do men, who do you say that I am? Friends, listen, people must respond because you are without excuse. You stand culpable in the eyes of God, and God demands a response for the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the truth of Christ. It is the truth of the Messiah. It is the truth of the second person of the Trinity. Friends, listen, it is, it is the truth of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and of his ascension. This, my friends, what are we going to do with that? If we declare that he is the Christ and we cast our allegiance unto him by faith through grace and we stand and believe in loyalty with him, we have all the wonderful benefits of eternal life. Thank God that we are eternally secure in Christ. Amen. If we remain in Christ, we, uh, listen, thank God that there's nothing can take us out, nothing can remove us. Uh, friends, listen, but I'm thankful that we can stand safe in his stead in the atoning grace in him. Okay, now, I, I want to finish off with this. And we, we talked about this a lot when we went through the book of Romans. We probably skimmed the surface and we mentioned it a lot of times, I know. Uh, but just for the sake of time tonight, and I encourage you to go back and listen to these things because we're going to get into these things again, especially when we get into John 6. And this is the, uh, the, the uh, listen, we see the Protestant Reformation come about. Uh, we have <coughs> uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the rise of these things. And, and we, we have from that Protestant Reformation, we have the birth of what is called Calvinism today. It's, it's, it goes under a popular uh, acrostic that most people know. It's TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of Saints. There's a lot of people, they'll say, uh, well, I'm a one-pointer, I'm a two-pointer, I'm a three, I'm a four, I'm a five, I'm a no-pointer, okay? just want to be blank. Uh, blunt and honest with you. I'm a no-pointer. 
There's a lot of people, they pump the brakes on that. And they say, whoa, whoa preacher, I'm at, least a, uh, I'm at least a one-pointer because I believe in perseverance and saints. Let me tell you why I don't believe the P in tulip because of how it's constructed, okay? Uh, so this is a stepping stone table right here. We see total depravity. This is the first step. What do they mean by total depravity? I affirm depravity. I'm friends, listen, we know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's a gospel, biblical truth, and I agree with that. But what they say, what they front load and, pre and, 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 and read into the presupposition of total depravity is actually total inability. So what they believe is that no man has the ability, and I agree with this, no man has the ability to save themselves. I agree with that, okay? Uh, but where the disagreement is, is, uh, listen, that we do have the ability to respond, okay? That, that's what being responsible is, is response-able, okay? Uh, so, friends, listen, uh, so uh, this is where they first fall, okay? So they believe that man is totally incapacitated, uh, incapable, and unable of responding to anything, and because uh, of that, they, they, they liken sinners uh, unto Lazarus, okay? Uh, and, and I hope I'm not strongmanning too much here, but uh, they say, well, Lazarus was dead. What can a dead man do? How can a dead man respond? Uh, friends, listen to me. Uh, the, the Scripture never describes to us spiritual death and separation as being, uh, you know, why would, God, uh, why would God blind their eyes or, or stop their ears so they can't see or they couldn't hear. Why, why do people have to, why does the text talk about when Jesus talks about that they hardened their hearts or uh, they, they, they hardened their ears and they blinded their eyes? Why do they do these things? Why do they do it? Yeah, listen, they did these things because they didn't want to respond to what they heard, okay? Uh, so friends, listen to me. There's a gospel truth before each and every one of us that we're responsible for, responsible, okay? Uh, so listen, we, I'm going to build this right here, and I'm going to wind this up. So we have total depravity. Well, that build on the next stepping stone. Because all men are, are totally depraved, totally incapable, and totally unable, therefore they say that, that, uh, that uh, election, therefore, has to be unconditional. What does that mean? What does unconditional election mean? Well, because of the depravity, uh, and because man is so wicked, and because they cannot even choose God uh, or uh, admit that they are sinners and believe upon God, therefore God elects certain individuals and people. Remember what I talked about? This is the reason I'm talking about this, because this has crept into the church. This is a very prevalent doctrine uh, among a lot of preachers that are on the uh, TV, radio, and especially books today. Friends, listen, we need to be weary of these things. We need to read into these things. We need to understand these things. So what is unconditional election? So they say, well, because man is so depraved and incapable and totally incapacitated, therefore nobody can choose God, therefore God has to choose them. So this is where we have, and there's a lot of people say that, that we get into this double predestination. Well, if God elects people to be saved, therefore it logically follows that God also has to uh, elect people that will go to hell. That's not the God that I serve, but this is the premise of this. So we have incapacity, therefore, because man is incapacitated, uh, therefore God has to elect who will and will not believe or be saved. And because of that, then follows the L that comes on the end of that. What is the L? The L is limited atonement. So we see the building blocks of this. So if God knows those that will be elected because they're so depraved that they cannot respond, therefore Christ died limitedly or definitely only for the elect. Okay? So Christ didn't die. In this theological concept, Christ did not die for all people, all places, in all the world. 
okay? He didn't die for the cosmos. He didn't die. Uh, listen, and, and I want to say this. This, this construct of theology is very individualized. This does, this does away with the corporate aspect. This is, this is to the individual, and this is where it goes wrong. So they say that limited atonement or definite atonement, so that means that people, that Christ only died uh, for uh, the elect, okay? And because Christ only died for the elect, we get to the I, which is irresistible grace. And because Christ only died for the elect, therefore when grace, when the Holy Spirit comes to them and draws them, they are irresistibly drawn. What does that mean? That means that they cannot choose otherwise. Because they are elect, they therefore will respond. And because they will respond, they will persevere. Okay, they build their doctrine of eternal. So if, let's run this in reverse. So if we run this in reverse, we see that an, that an eternally secure saint in this view. Okay, don't don't mess what I'm saying. In this view, <clears throat> that, that that a person is eternally secure because they couldn't resist the Holy Spirit of God. They couldn't resist the Holy Spirit of God because Christ died for them specifically and definitely, limitedly. And because Christ died for them definitely and limitedly, therefore they were elected or foreordained. You remember when we talked about this? Foreordained or predetermined of God that they would be these things because they were depraved. You see how we get into this construct and that's what I say. Amen. You can't be a one-pointer or a three or a two. You're either a five or you're none. Okay? And when we see this view of God, I cannot affirm any of this textually. Now, if you want to affirm this, this is how you want to believe, that's your prerogative. I'm Francis, but I'm just putting all the cards on the table. I'm putting all these concepts on the table. Our thought processes, our, uh, our, uh, our philosophical constructs of our theology or our view of God, okay? We put all these things on the table. We run them to their ends. Where do we land, and who is the God of the Bible? I believe the God of the Bible is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent. Friends, listen, I believe the truth of the Word of God, the Bible tells us, and, and I'll say this in closing. John 1 and 1, we talked about this great length. Uh, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, without Him there's nothing made that is made. That word, uh, word uh, there, the Word was God is the is the logos, which is logic or rationale, and when we see these things right right here, we we there's a lot of people say, well, I I I don't want to run the logical ends of things. Well, that's what Christ is. He is the basis of all reason, uh, reason, truth, and logic. That is Jesus Christ. That's why he declared unto Pilate, I am truth. He is the Word. He is the logic that makes this thing. Friends, listen, and, and there's nothing irrational or contradictory in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the triune Godhead. We can have these things. I would encourage you. I know I've said a lot. I went in a minute or two minutes over where I said I was. I know I've said a lot. I know I've dumped a lot of information. I hope that you'll go back. I hope that you'll study this. I hope most of all, I honestly mean this, I hope most of all this will be beneficial to help you grow in grace and knowledge and truth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. We love you.